Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. <laughs> well... Oh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. When I found out I was going to be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Civics. Civics. Civics 101. September 14th. September 14th. 0 0 1. I'm Nick Epidice. And I'm Hannah McCarthy. And this is Civics 101, the podcast refresher course on the basics of how our democracy works. And today's episode is. The draft. The draft. April 24th. April 24th is 002. What do we want to know about the draft? I want to know when it started and when it stopped and what can cause it possibly to reinstate it again. Yeah, and I want to know how you can get out of it, if you can get out of it. December 30th. Zero, zero, three. Who has the, who can say it starts it up again? Who can start up the old draft engine? Yeah, does it have to be the president? And if we do start it again, will women be included? That's a good question. August 31st, December 7th, July 8th, April 11th. So to learn more about the draft, we got in touch with Jennifer Middlestat. She's a professor of history at Rutgers and the Harold K. Johnson Chair of Military History at the U.S. Army War College. And you know what we learned? Yeah, I actually ha- have a chair. They actually gave me a chair, like an engraved <gasps> a literal chair. chair. <laughs> all right, so let's get started. So when I turned 18, I did what all males living in the U.S. have to do. Uh, and this is native-born, immigrant, documented and undocumented, uh, which is I went and signed up for the Selective Service. Can you tell me what I did? Yes, I can tell you what <laughs> okay, you did. Good. Um, that is actually the product of a law passed in 1980 uh, by President Jimmy Carter in the Congress, which sort of reinstituted the Selective Service after the suspension of the draft in 1973. And what that asks um, young men in the United States, 18 to 25, to do is to, upon reaching age 18, sign up for the Selective Service and We do not currently have an active draft, but what the Selective Service Act of 1980 does is make sure that there is a plan in case there is a need for a large mobilization that the U.S. government knows where those 18 to 25-year-old males are, that they are signed up, and they can be mobilized in case of an emergency. Okay. And I have so many questions about how we got here, and I have questions about words like... um conscious objection, the draft lottery, draft cards, what it means when someone's number comes up. And in my mind, uh, those are all tied to the Vietnam War. But to get there, I guess it might make sense to take us from the beginning of the draft in America. Could you do that? 
that there's always been some form of compulsory military service, even if you go back all the way to the settlement of Jamestown and the Plymouth Colony. Eligible, able-bodied males were required to perform some kind of military service if necessary, and they were required to train for that as well. What happens during the Revolutionary War is that for the very first time with the Declaration of Independence, Americans are forced to consider what compulsory military service might mean in the context of a new nation. What are the obligations of citizens, not sort of to their local fellow citizens, um, but what does it mean to the nation? And it won't be until the Civil War that we really see a national draft law. What were the compelling factors? I mean, I'm presuming simply not enough men to fight, but what did that look like? Why did they make that decision? Well, that's right. As a military leader, one of the things that you have to think about is how can I best win this conflict? And of course, having a fully staffed, fully manned army is one important consideration. So in 1862, in the Confederacy, they instituted uh, a draft. And in 1863, uh, Lincoln did in the North. They were wildly unpopular, Uh however. (laughs) On both sides or just On both sides. Uh On both sides, they were wildly unpopular. They were unpopular in the Confederacy and the Union for some of the same reasons. Um, And this brings us to one of the other major questions besides what do citizens owe their government that surrounds the draft. And and that question really is, is the draft fair? And so in both the Confederacy and the Union in the 1860s, you were permitted to buy your way out or purchase a substitute. And much of the fighting um, fell to those that we might think of as sort of the lower sort. That might have been the term at the time what we today might think of as the working classes, agricultural classes. And foreign-born as well, right? Yes. There, there are still, even today, being foreign-born does not preclude you um, from military service. Indeed, the draft riots, um, which, were, which took place in New York City in 1863, were some of the most violent episodes in the history of the draft. And there you were actually looking at foreign-born Irish and German immigrants to the city whose sentiments against the war and actually against um, African-Americans had been stoked since 1859, 1860, by anti-war Democrats in the city. When the draft law was passed in 1863, they erupted in riots, both against the draft offices, but also against African-Americans across the city. So when people were buying themselves out of the Civil War, was it considered at the time unpatriotic to get yourself out of the draft? It was not. I mean, if you recall, with the the founding of the nation, only propertied white men were able to vote for many years. And it wasn't until the Jacksonian era that the vote was uh, sort of spread out to non-property holding white men. So allowing for that out wasn't necessarily considered at that time to be unpatriotic. But it was resented by the it was resented, nevertheless, by by the working and lower classes. Mm. So how did things change in World War I, the war to end all wars? World War I is really when the modern national draft takes form. So in 1917, Woodrow Wilson reluctantly passes what he will call the 1917 Selective Service Act. And there are a few things to note about that. So first of all, the word draft, the word conscription, the word compulsory is nowhere really in the title or description. And that's by design. 
the Selective Service Act is meant to sort of bring a national draft but avoid as much political controversy as possible. So what happens? That means there are no more substitutions and buyouts allowed. It means um, that there will not be the national government or the military making the decisions about who's in and who's out, but rather those decisions about who will be drafted are deferred to 4,000 local selective service boards. So they're looking for men who are of what we would think of as sort of sort of prime fighting age. They are trying to avoid uh, married men. These people need to be able to meet basic health requirements. They can't be too sick. They can't be disabled. They also can't be criminals. But it sounds like it sounds like a mess, Jennifer. Four thousand different draft boards. Like, how on earth can you police that there's fairness going on in each one of these? That's a really good question, and I don't know how, except for that the members of the board are sworn to uphold the standards of the of the National Selective Service Act. But I think you might be right to wonder about the kind of discretion that might have operated at the local level. And that might get us into the territory of people who are openly saying at the local level, I do not wish to serve. So for the very first time in 1917, the law allows for conscientious objection. That basis, however, is on religious or moral grounds, and you have to have a very strong case for it. It can't be on political grounds. It can't be on philosophical grounds. So I think there are cases that we could look at at the local level where someone might have presented themselves in one locale and said, I object to this war, and the local board may have allowed for an exemption on the basis of conscientious objection that may not have been allowed in another local board. So were things looking approximately the same come World War II? Was the draft looking the same? Were these conscientious conscientious objectors looking the same? Yes, that law was looking very much the same. But what's really interesting about World War II is that the scope of the mobilization, I mean, just the vast need to bring people into military service very, very quickly makes that period of time probably the period in which the draft operated in its most fair manner. In fact, in which military service operated in its most representative manner. So one thing you might do is just look at the numbers. So World War I didn't require the same mobilization. The Selective Service Act eventually mobilized around 3 million people in World War I. Well, in World War II, 16 million. Of those 16 million, 10 million were purely drafted. And is, are you saying that that's what made it fair, that there were just fewer conversations about, well, this guy gets in, this guy doesn't get in, and it's sort of like, y'all got to go? Yes. You just couldn't use as much discretion to maybe let out, you know, the nice kid who was uh, already in college or the, the kid who was about to take over the family business. Most people were pressed um, as far as they could into military service because there wasn't the leeway to allow them out. Who orders the draft? Is it the president? Is it the president with the Congress? Who makes that decision? It's the president with the approval of Congress who initiates the Selective Service Act. Okay, this is probably a good time to take a quick break. Civics 101 will be right back. September 26th, November 1st, June 4th, August 10th, June 26th. 
July 24th, December 14th, July 21st, June 5th, March 2nd, March 31st. Welcome back to Civics 101. Today we're talking about the draft with Jennifer Middlestadt. So we started this episode by going back to the beginning of American history and the draft. So let's talk about the era that most people probably associate with the draft. My father was drafted, um, went to Vietnam. Hannah's uncle, your uncle was drafted, went to Vietnam. How did the draft operate during the Vietnam War? So the Vietnam draft is the product of the reinstitution of the draft. It went away for a brief year from 1947 at the end of World War II to 1948 when the U.S. decides to reinstitute it because of the advent of the Cold War and concerns that the U.S. might have to mobilize for another war. So during that period, the U.S. does need a large standing army, but not nearly as large as what it needed in World War II. So the Selective Service Act actually starts to encompass um, these provisos and limitations on who will actually be drafted and who won't. So it's saying, for example, if you're in college and you're on your way to becoming an educated citizen who can then go into the workforce or go into education and help protect national security through educating children, well, then you might be exempt from the draft. So when the Vietnam War expands during um, late 1964 and especially 1965, those sort of channeling programs have actually made it so that the people who are most likely to be drafted by that time are those who are not in college, those who have high school diplomas, in fact, those who are working um, working class jobs. And so that period of the draft um, in the beginnings, the first three years of the Vietnam War, actually witnesses the kind of reintroduction of a, a less fair basis of selective service. So in 1968, this all comes to a head. And of course, that's an election year. And every single candidate running for office that year comes out in opposition to the draft. And as a result, what you see upon the eventual election of Richard Nixon in 1968, those exemptions start to fall away. And the U.S. turns instead to a basic lottery. You cannot be exempted based on your education, based on whether or not you're married. The Vietnam draft really does reach out to those beyond the working class and into the middle classes. Wow. So it seems that in this unpopular war and this unpopular idea of a draft in 1969, we kind of get to the most fair so far. Well, I think World War II, if we look at the demographics, still stands ultimately as the most representative period. But after 1969, with the institution of the lottery, those inequities in the overrepresentation of African Americans and the sort of gross overrepresentation of working class Americans are largely eliminated. Interestingly enough, though, once the white middle classes realize that they really will not be exempted from this. This is when the serious pressure to end the war is amped up and the war is brought to a close. So it is precisely the thing that makes the draft fairer, that makes the war more unpopular than it ever was. Can you tell me about that 1969 lottery? 
Uh, I, I remember something was on live TV. How did that work? What they did was more or less pick out of a, I guess it wasn't a hat. I guess it was um, a glass jar. I saw a video of I saw <laughs> a video. A of, I saw a video of blue Easter eggs in a glass jar. Three hundred and sixty-six <laughs> Easter eggs. Little blue balls, right? And you know, much the same way uh, what we now think of as you know money lotteries, right? Right? Uh, operate yeah, bingo, yeah. Bingo, right? They reached in and they picked out a ball, and that ball had a date on it. So when someone said their number was up. What they meant was either that their birthday had actually been chosen on that initial blue ball or that their birthday was very close to that. And so going in chronological order, their birth date would be one of the next ones that would be called in order to fulfill that particular uh, draft need at that particular time. So I'm picturing a truck going to Fort Bragg and everybody's on it got the same birthday. Isn't that strange? Think about I, it. I guess I guess that might be right. <laughs> so where are we today in terms of the draft? As Nick said, when he turned 18, he had to register for a selective service. Is it lying dormant right now? And what would it take to bring it back? Well, the unpopularity of the draft during Vietnam is one of the things that led to the end of the draft in 1973. So uh, Richard Nixon, upon election, not only sort of gets rid of the exemptions and switches over to a lottery, but he also puts the U.S. on the path toward the end of conscription. He creates a a commission on what he will call the all-volunteer force. And what that commission argues is that a draft force is antithetical to concepts of U.S. liberty, and it will be eliminated. And from that point on, the U.S. will staff its military fully through recruitment and voluntary enlistments. And so since 1973, that is, in fact, what the U.S. has had. It was that 1980 law that Jimmy Carter put in place that reinstituted as a backup, as a sort of safeguard, the selective service in a sort of just-in-case mode. But at the same time, that has never been activated. So Nick might have registered, but Nick and no one like him who's registered has ever been called into service since then. Is there any chance that women would have to be a part of the draft in the future if we entered another huge war? So because the combat exemption has been lifted for women, it is likely that women in the not-too-distant future will be required to register for selective service. Indeed, uh, before Trump was elected, there was a bill working its way through Congress um, that was going to require women to do just that. Um, After Trump's election, that was pulled, but I believe that there are people who have tried reintroducing it since then, and it's an open question as to what will happen. Do you think the draft could ever happen again in America? Well, I think historians are really bad predictors of the future. So I'm I'm really not sure what will happen. But I would not put it outside of the realm of possibility. If you think back to the beginning of the nation and you think about the debate that sort of went on about whether or not compulsory military service was sort of, I guess, the essence of citizenship, something that in a free society you owe to your country – or whether or not it's the kind of opposite 
and compulsory military service is this sort of tyrannical imposition against the liberty of free citizens. I think for many Americans, the switch to the all-volunteer force sort of settled that question. And the answer was, you don't owe anything, and there are people who will volunteer. But I think, in fact, those who are still thinking about national service, uh, whether in the military or in the military and in other places, are sort of still asking that question, saying that perhaps, you know, one measure of citizenship is the degree to which you serve fellow citizens and the nation itself. That was Jennifer Middlestadt, a professor of history at Rutgers and the Harold K. Johnson Chair of Military History at the U.S. Army War College. And if you haven't gotten a chance to watch the video of the Vietnam Lottery, you should. It's pretty wild. It's got some blue Easter eggs. We'll post a link in the show notes and at our website, civics101podcast.org. This episode was produced by Taylor Quimby. Our executive producer is Erica Janik. Our staff includes Jimmy Gutierrez, Justine Paradise, and Jackie Helbert. Music in this episode by Sarah Alfonso and Silicon Transmitter. Civics 101 is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. They're not blue Easter eggs. They're I know. I'll try <laughs> they they look Easter more eggs. like I know, ping pong ball. <laughs>
bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.